We return to our dialogue regarding terrorism and the integrity of the information made available to the U.S. public. We also want to remind you that this dialogue with Evan Solis is a pre-taped interview from just a couple of days ago on January the 14th. And I really applaud your insight about the deceitfulness, the tip of the iceberg type of concept. But even in the Bay of Pigs, this is how deceitful the United States is, is in the Bay of Pigs, we actually flew a flight from Nicaragua, which is where these Cuban exiles were getting trained by U.S. money and and CIA. And we timed the flight to come to Florida Air Base. I forget which one it was. But before it left Nicaragua, they shot up the fuselage with machine gun fire. They had taken a plane and painted it with Cuban colors. And the claim was, Mm -hmm. as the guy lands in in Florida and whisked away so nobody could talk to him, was that this was a Cuban Air Force pilot defecting and that there was this big uprising in Cuba going on that we needed to support. That was the image-making that was a deceitful image making. They, they, and a couple of weeks ago when we were talking on the show, we mentioned a bunch of the Joint Chiefs of Staff plans that were also being created as a potential pretext for war. You remember John Glenn? I mean, just probably before you were born, but I think it was 61, 62, or, or maybe a little bit later, 63. But he was the first American to get up in a spaceship to orbit, orbit our world, right? And they knew... And everyone knew that this was the most dangerous. It's not like, you know, just it is now where you have a pretty good Mm -hmm. chance of surviving anything NASA will send you up in. But there was a real chance that there was no way he would be able to do this, right? And if he didn't do that... And there was an explosion or some other disastrous result that took the life of John Glenn. They were going to create a scenario where they blame Castro for it. Deceitfulness of our intelligence, and Pompeo has even admitted this that the CIA lies and all that creates the circumstance that there is nothing that we should believe that our intelligence says until it gets validated by evidence, you know, which is the way it should be. That's what basically due process is. But in addition to that, I just might add the United States has been deeply involved with terrorism in other countries, and there are people like Tulsi Gabbards that has talked about at great length and documented with other people how the resistance, military resistance, that is, to the Assad government has been predominantly, overwhelmingly been by these jihadist type forces. And it's not just Tulsi Gabbards. And it's not just, you know, CNN and New York Times reporting this stuff. You know, U.S. Senator Richard Black, he is a, a Republican He was a U.S. Marine during the Vietnam War here in the Purple Heart, and then he went on to get a law degree, and he's just a conservative, patriotic American of of sorts. He came out, and he was uh, indicating how—I'm just going to read some words that he said— that he was pleased that the Russian intervention against the armies invading Syria with their support, the Syrian army had made dramatic strides against terrorists— this is in 2015. So he was well aware of who was fighting the Assad government, but he was just completely uncovered by the American press. He said, I was delighted by Syria's resounding victory over ISIS at the Kueris airfield. My compliments to those who heroically rescued a thousand brave Syrian soldiers from certain death. I am convinced many such victories will be ahead. He asserted that the war on Syria was not caused by domestic unrest. These are, again, his words. It was an unlawful war of aggression by foreign powers determined to force a puppet regime on Syria. 
it goes on and on on documentation to that issue. But we just never hear that. We never hear that perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's not just Syria. In the Ukraine, the coup that we promoted in 2014 at Victoria Newland now is now being reassigned by Biden to be a point person in the State Department there, a very high position. You know, she had a phone call that was very clearly with the ambassador of, from the United States outlining all of the factual information you would need to know that to know that this was a U.S. engineered coup. And the result of the coup was a government came to power that had over a half dozen neo-Nazi cabinet members. In other words, people that were clearly and documentably connected to the ideology of, of neo-Nazism, right? And in fact, the first government since World War II to be kind of peppered with these types of neo-Nazis was the one that we put into power through Obama's foreign policy outcomes in, in the Ukraine. Instead, what we get in the United States is that this was a form of Russian aggression, as opposed to the fact that no, the, the whole thing that ignited this was a, was a coup. Uh, it's just black and white. But it's generally unknown because it's not reported. I, I don't want to get into all the issues of that, but it's just to connect us to the, our real history of who are we promoting. So here in Ukraine, it's neo-Nazis. In Syria, terrorists. And in Libya, the, the, uh, the LIFG up in the northeastern part of Benghazi, the area there that they claimed was civilians fighting against Gaddafi actually were terrorists as well. And when it comes to Osama bin Laden, who birthed Osama bin Laden? It was the Mujahideen, which we were instrumental in creating in Afghanistan in order to create problems for for Russia. Once again, our allies, our surrogate fighters are, are terrorists. This is what Tulsi Gabbards claimed the disloyalty to the families of the 3,500 Americans that died because of Al-Qaeda. We have a war on terrorism, we're told, but they keep showing up in all of these arenas as our allies. And then we're going to accuse Cuba of being a terrorist nation, which our dutiful mainstream media report without without questioning, without evidence. Mm. And I'm interested in knowing what your thoughts are. Is there, I mean... Is there valid criticism to be had of the Cuban government with regards to what's the Trump looking for here? Imprison, political imprisonment, uh, censuring. I mean, you know, you've been there, you've studied. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about Cuba, so you know, I just from what I've heard, is there valid criticism to be made of that? That doesn't, you know, necessarily compare to terrorism, but of the Cuban government, or I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's always valid criticism of any government because things, all, all governments are imperfect and things could be done better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's number one. Number two, I think the context of what goes on in the environment in which it goes on, this stuff doesn't occur in a vacuum, you know, and when you really begin to appreciate the efforts by the United States militarily, through these terrorist acts, through trying to ignite opposition, through funding, as we've been talking about, and those types of things. How, how does a country react if they don't react to defend themselves and to the violations of their sovereignty? Then they're not going to last very long. And there's a number of countries where that's been the case. On the other side, if you overreact and create a really authoritarian system and claim that we have to use this authoritarianism in order to fight this, uh, this uh, subjugation of our country, 
there's always going to be room for, for criticism. I do know that at the end of the day, that the claims against Cuba have historically been overstated. Like, for instance, what we see as Americans is back with the immigration thing is people would get on rafts, right, and try to come over to the Florida, right? Mm-hmm. And we had what was called, what, a wet foot, dry foot policy. That means unlike any other country of the world, like Haiti or all these other Caribbean nations, if they get on a boat and come to the United States and they step on our land without proper protocol, they are not allowed into the country and they have to go through a whole long process. But in Cuba, in order to, what I believe, create more people taking that chance, all you had to do was land there. And you would not only become a U.S. citizen automatically, but you'd be eligible for all of these benefits in Florida. And many of those are where many Cubans ended up staying and never leaving. Our immigration policies specific to Cuba and Cuba only incentivized them coming to the United States. Imagine the millions of people that would have come to the United States if all countries were incentivized the same way that Cubans were. Right. That's never even known about by the American public. And then the other uh, issue is the emigration rates. Despite the very, very difficult journey to get to Florida and the um, kind of death-defying thing that we all say, well, why would anybody risk themselves like that if, if Cuba wasn't a horrific place? It turns out that as many or more people were emigrating from other uh, Caribbean nations. This is a per capita thing, Evan. This is something you can go to the World CIA Factbook and look up under emigration rates, right? How many people leave your country per, I don't know if it's a thousand or per hundred thousand or whatever their indice is. But then you can comparatively look at other nations in that deal and you find out that, well, you know what? Everyone wants to come to the United States. You know, there's economic opportunities in, in the United mm-hmm. States that, that may not be in their countries. But instead, it's painted as if it's only Cuba. I'm not here to defend Cuba in any way as a perfect type of government, but I think as any social scientist should do is you need to look at the context and in the environment of the situation before making judgments as to some of these issues that we're talking about. Mm, right, of course. Yeah. Well, one of my final questions is, what do you think a sane, healthy policy towards Cuba looks like from the U.S.? What do you hope, you know, obviously, I know Biden doesn't give a lot of hope to to progressives on anything, but I mean, what would you hope for with regards to policy towards Cuba that would be a step in in the right direction? Mm -hmm. I would think, look, the Biden administration and the people that he has put into the power of his foreign policy teams, including most recently Samantha Powers at the United States Agency for International Development. These are people that have been connected to the worst humanitarian types of situations. I mean, Samantha Powers, is she was the great advocate in the Obama administration for the Libyan intervention that turned the country, Libya, that had the highest human development index in all African nations into, you know, what it is today, just a just a horrific situation where slavery has actually returned. CNN's had articles, blacks in Libya bought and sold. As a direct outcome of the quote-unquote humanitarian interventions of Samantha Power and the Obama administration. You know, uh, this is what we do in the world. This is what we create, I mean, but, but it just doesn't get reported. So Mike, when you talk about relativity, I think there's important benefits that Biden can bring to that situation that you're indicating that 
had no chance under Trump. Namely, improved U.S.-Cuban relations. But the bottom line of regime change will be absolutely unaltered. And so that's disappointing. But I think the main things that are really tangible, you know, first, before they can do any of it, they have to deal uh, removing the terrorist tag off of them, you know, as you indicated, requires some uh, administrative time and months. Um, So it's just another obstacle. But once that's done, I would suspect travel restrictions can be reduced and eliminated. People can go down there, take economic gifts and remittances to give to their families and that type of thing. And those very positive things. So I would suggest that there are millions of Cubans that are very, very excited about Donald Trump leaving the White House. And I would think Mm. there's a, I would also think there are millions of Cubans that believe that you have to be very, very careful with the United States. All you have to do is study that long history under some very progressive governments, whether it was Obama. As I say, under Obama, millions of dollars poured in to try to create public unrest. So even despite the... uh, positive things he did and allowing Cuban baseball players to come to the United States too. And, was- and reopen diplomatic relations. Those are good things. Yeah. I think either, you know, whatever's going to happen, you know, certainly couldn't be much worse, I'd imagine, than, I mean, who knows, maybe it won't be much better, but it probably can't be much worse than than, than this administration's uh, intent. So I guess you and I, Pedro, are going to have to get down to Cuba for a little vacation while the getting's good. Let's yeah, say, I, 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 think that's a, I think that's a good idea. Let me ask you a question. When people talk about Cuba-U.S. relations, it seems to always be about, what about these criticisms about Cuba? I mean, they all can't be wrong, you know. Uh, they're, you know and, I, and I'm just wondering, I think if, if the history of what we have done as a nation to try to overthrow Cuba, and not just Cuba, all sorts of progressive governments throughout Latin America, throughout the world, for that matter, if people really knew to what extent our policies impact not just countries, but the majority population of those countries, and if people really saw what I see. And through those studies have documented in in an empirical manner in previous Bringing Light into Darkness shows which is that there's a consistent pattern as you look at all of these examples that the government that we are trying to overthrow or the government that we're trying to support, that that the best interests of the majority population always improve if our interests are defeated. You know, and it's measurable because you can see a successful movement, you know, whether it's in Bolivia or Ecuador or, you know, in, in Venezuela, you know, from looking at before Chavez and after and through all of these different countries. Honduras, just in this century, Honduras, 2009, Libya, 2011, Iraq, 2003, Ukraine, 2014, Bolivia, Ecuador, Cuba. You can see the plight of the majority population. I'm talking about life expectancy and just quality of life issues of that sort. And this is despite the overwhelming economic might of the West to supplant that. So my question is, is there a way in order to bring in all of the context as an understanding during these discussions? You know, how important is that? Because if we keep staying focused all the time, how Cuba is imperfect and, and that type of thing. I mean, Cuba has not invaded any other country, have they? I mean, if you look at Russia, it's the same type of thing. How many military bases does Russia have outside of former Soviet Republic? Mm-hmm. It, there's none. There's, I mean, there's a couple in Syria, excuse me. 
but all the other ones are in former Soviet republics. We have 800 military bases throughout the world, you know, but we are so convinced that 800 military bases is not aggression, but Russia is aggression. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we have these discussions, just like we're having discussions at the Capitol about the double standards, all of a sudden everyone needs proof. of voter fraud. The way it should be. But if you don't treat each episode as a real court of law would, where each side gets to present its information and documentation and evidence, and then at the end of the day, the public can decide who's up and who's down. But if all you hear is one side of that trial and nothing from the other perspective, you're going to create a population that's going to enable and promote this type of foreign policy that we've been so concerned about. But what are your thoughts on that? I mean, as a journalist and and trying to get at what to believe and what not to believe, what do you advise people to do to get as close to the truth as possible? I mean, I think, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, you answered that the question right there. I mean, I'm, I'm, and I don't, I'm not an expert on Cuba. I know relatively little and, you know, more than some folks and a lot less than a lot of other folks about what goes on in that island. And, and, you know, someone like you who has researched the history, I think it's, you all, you have a very unique perspective, much more informed than the average person. And certainly just because of your own ideology, it, it seems like much more inclined to be critical of the U.S. and not, not I'm not saying in, in that in a bad way, I mean, rightfully critical of, of U.S. policies that, that we ought to be critical of, that we ought to be aware of, and that we ought to criticize. Um, and so when I asked that question about, you know, Cuba, I think, I mean, double standards cut both ways, right? And you're right, I think context does matter. And I think, uh, you know, it's not to say both sides-ism or whataboutism, um, or, you know, that's, that's not my intent in asking the question. I'm not trying to make apologies or, or be an apologist for United States policy in Cuba or anywhere in the world for that matter. But, you know, at the same time, there are, what, a million Cubans in diaspora? I don't know how many. I'm just guessing hundreds of thousands. I know some myself, folks who have very, um, who have knowledge of their own and, and context of their own and history of their own. And they're not all right-wing nut jobs, right? I mean, they're not, if you, definitely, I'm not saying you're saying this, but mm-hmm. if you, if one does say that, you are wrong. Uh, you are you are incorrect. If that is going to be your assumption that every Cuban in diaspora who has critical views of Cuba is a right winger and whatever their view should be discounted, that is incorrect. Um, that I do know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, it's just an interesting. You know, it's just a question. I don't. I don't. I don't. You know, know um, too much. I just know that you know, like anything, it's a very complex situation. And I certainly. I mean, again, it's like with a lot of these issues. If we're talking about Cuban relations in the U.S., should what may or may not be unsavory on the island side, should that be the focus, the brunt of the conversation? No, probably not. Again, that's why it's just we're spending five minutes on this in a 45-minute discussion. So, But, you know, that's why that's where I'm coming from and why. And certainly, you know, I know that I know that you, I know you, you know, you and I are, are, are good friends and I respect you a lot as a just a researcher and a journalist. And so I know that you have your ideology, but I also know that you're, you know, not going to ignore facts or data, right, or anything like that. And so that's that's why I asked the question, and that's that's sort of where I'm coming from with that question. Essentially, Pedro, when the next time there's a Bay of Pigs, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to be on that plane to to help liberate uh, Cuba from the, uh, you know, their oppressive regime. That's that's basically what I'm getting at here. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a joke that's yeah, and yeah. don't know me that's, <laughs> well, well, it, it is interesting because it is hard to really kind of get at what to believe or what not to believe but I guess when you have patterns of behavior and when I say patterns not things that have happened and it was just a bad apple 
kind of thing, but went time and time mm-hmm. again. So, you know, like for instance, I know you're very fluent in, in El Salvadoran affairs and, and Archbishop Romero and, and preparing for the show, I was going back through my notes and General Jose Guillermo Garcia, he was the defense minister from October of 79 to April of 83 in El Salvador, that is. And in 1990, he was granted political asylum in the United States, stating that he feared for his life. Okay. In a parallel case, uh, under appeal at this time of 2014, General Carlos Eugenio Vides Casanova was deported in April of 2013. He's another former Salvadoran defense minister. These people were, were killers. They were responsible mm, yeah. for the deaths yeah. of, of, of tens of thousands of El Salvadorians, and then groups actually pressed charges against them. And they, but for dozens of years, they resided in Florida. And, right. and, and, uh, it just is striking to me that when you look at the level of their crimes and, you know, an immigration appeals court was upheld, the, the de- deportation of the Salvatoran general that we were talking about living in Florida because he was complicit. They found him complicit in the rape and murder of three American Marinol nuns and the torture of political prisoners. Uh, yeah. the, the Board of Immigration Appeals ruled that there was ample evidence that General Carlos Eugenio Vidas Casanova, as head of the National Guard and the Minister of Defense, assisted or condoned in the killing of the three nuns, Ida Ford, Moore Clark, and Dorothy Kazel in 1980, as well as the fourth one, Gene Donovan. But these four were kidnapped by guardsmen. In a country that received billions of dollars of U.S. military aid and training, these were our people, and that's why they ended up residing in Florida. And yeah. and, and they were raped and murdered. Yeah. And and then earlier that year of 1980, because in, 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 uh, this was in December, but in, 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 in March, as you're very aware of all of this, but this is when Archbishop Romero was murdered. And these people were the ones that were responsible for him. And they sat yeah. and they lived in, we have these killers that come after they've served the interests of U.S. foreign policy, they they retire in Florida or other places. Some of them are in Memphis mm-hmm. or or whatever and such. So, and then Posada Carillas, you yeah, know, exactly. you know, he's not he's not just responsible for the uh, shoot down of uh, Cubana de Aviación. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. They killed seventy six Cubans, including their fencing team. So all of this type of terrorist activity and these people coming to the United States and retiring in a very, very calm and welcomed way. And then Pompeo is going to say that Cuba harbors terrorists. I mean, it's just remarkable. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 I think, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt it. I mean, that's, you know, I think that my first question on the hypocrisy of it, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. right? I mean, Posada Carriles died a free man in, in Miami. You know, folks in El Salvador, uh, Dawison, who was part of the right-wing uh, mm-hmm. Arena Party. I, I don't remember if he died a free man in the U.S., like, if he was extradited to the very end, but he certainly lived uh, for many years in the U.S., you know, after having, like you said, been complicit not just in the murder of El Salvadorans, but in the murder of these four nuns, right, these three American, or I don't remember if they were American, or some of them were American, right? They were nuns. American. So I mean, yeah, the, the the hypocrisy is is apparent, right? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think any. So that, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, if it wasn't so serious, and you know, if it didn't have, um, if it didn't actually mean something, it'd be sort of laughable, and to see, you know, the last some some of the last international 
uh, declarations from a government, from an administration that has literally just incited a terrorist act on its own capital. It's, 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 uh, I mean, you know, it's like something out of a, something out of a, uh, you know, like a, like a, like a cartoon movie or something, a supervillain movie. This is very, this is very strange. Just to end the show, but you know, the words of Jean Donovan, right? She, you know, she was one of the followers of Archbishop Romero, but she, in a famous message in the weeks before she died, she wrote to a friend Okay, so, you know, she died, we said, what, December of 1980, right? Peace, uh-huh. t- the Peace Corps left today, and my heart sank low. She's here in El Salvador. The danger is extreme, and they were right to leave. Now I must assess my own position, because I am not up for suicide. Several times I have decided to leave El Salvador. I almost could, except for the children, the poor, bruised victims of this insanity. Who would care for them? whose heart would be so staunch as to favor the reasonable thing in a sea of their tears and loneliness? Not mine, dear friend, not mine. So she stayed and she died. And Vice President Cheney, during his vice president debate, brought up how proud he was with our, with our foreign policy in El Salvador. And that's what our foreign policy did. It didn't just kill 50,000 El Salvadorans. It killed some of the most beautiful clergy and lay people and et cetera, et cetera, and stuff. So anyhow, and I just wonder, under the FMLN, these children that Gene Donovan was so concerned about, I can assure you they have a much better future under that government than they did that against the one that uh, the FMLN and that uh, Archbishop Romero was, was fighting. So um, with that, hey, Evan, thank you so much for being part of the show. Again, when is your show coming up? Yeah, Pedro, thanks for having me. Um, you know, always happy to, to contribute in any way that I can, any small way to, to your uh, program, what you're doing. And uh, uh, so, yeah, thanks for thanks for the invite. And, yeah, my uh, program, Fantadisa, will be airing tomorrow, 1 to one thirty on co-op, uh, bilingual Spanish-English. We're talking with Joe Ramirez of the Austin Latino Healthcare Forum, or rather Latino Healthcare Forum about the vaccine process and some of the difficulties and the inequities as well uh, among communities of color here in Austin and, and receiving that vaccine. So, yeah, so I want to listen. More than welcome to, to tune that dial uh, at 1 o'clock tomorrow. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot, brother. Hey, appreciate it, Pedro. Please stay tuned for our local music mix that comes up next. To our listening public, thank you for joining us once again. Please email any questions, comments, or interests to pgatos00 at gmail.com. We take you out as we do each week with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Breaks all his own love.